This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. novelist Marianne Evans, known to most by her pen name George Eliot, once observed, What we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. How well do we cope with change? And why do some people sink while others swim? Audrey McGee, author of The Undertaking, shortlisted for this year's Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, talks love human resilience and the horrors of the Russian front during World War II. And we're going to take a nice juicy bite into the dark and dysfunctional world of the 19th century novel. Yes, think big houses, broken hearts and all the charming insolence, the exploitation, the hypocrisy and greed played out in timeless classics such as Tess of Doverville, Bleak House, Hard Times, Vanity Fair, Wuthering Heights, and my own personal favourite, Middlemarch. This is a show about class and mobility, circumstance and choice, survival and letting go. But first, novelist Audrey McGee discusses The Undertaking. Earlier in the month, Eva McBride won the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction for her outstanding and hugely original book, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. What a great moment and victory for Emer, not to mention an inspiration for all those trying to get their book published. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard the story by now. Emer wrote the book back in 2004, but the book was dismissed by publishers as too difficult. She only got it published last year by a small publishing company in Norwich. It's quite a story and really just shows you how perseverance, hope and a bit of belief pays off. Now, this year's shortlist was hot, hot, hot and included some terrific books, including American writer Donna Tartt for The Goldfinch and, of course, the young, talented Australian Hannah Kent for Burial Rights, which tells a fascinating story of Agnes, the last woman put to death in Iceland. It's a really interesting read. Now, one of the other ladies Emer was up against on the shortlist was journalist and writer Audrey McGee whose debut novel, The Undertaking, caused quite a stir. The Undertaking tells the story of Peter and Katrina, a German couple who married during World War II. The story goes like this. Desperate to escape the Eastern Front, Peter Faber, an ordinary German soldier, marries Katrina Spinel, a woman he has never met. It's a marriage of convenience that promises honeymoon leave for him and a pension for her should he die in the front. Yes, all very romantic. With 10 days leave secured, Peter visits his new wife in Berlin. And this is where the story takes off. Both are surprised by the attraction that develops between them. When Peter returns to the horrors of the front, it is only the dream of his wife that sustains him as he approaches terrifying Stalingrad. For those of you who like a bit of historical fiction, with plenty bite, grit and intensity, well, you won't be disappointed. The Undertaking is a tense, dark and deeply challenging read. It has high drama, 
terror and emotion in spades. I absolutely loved it. Now, what I liked about this book is how Audrey contrasts the experience and lives of two lovers during World War II and the choices they have to make and how they stay alive. It's a hugely moving and powerful reflection on humanity, resilience, dreams and survival. The book's depiction of the Eastern Front is absolutely compelling. The teamwork, the hunger, the anger, the paranoia, the violence and the great acts of kindness in between. One thing that really stuck out for me is how Audrey writes her characters. She does it brilliantly. You get very, very close to them. You can almost smell them, touch them, feel them. Audrey McGee worked for 12 years as a journalist and has written for, among others, The Irish Times, The Observer, The Times and The Guardian. Audrey lives in Wicklow with her husband and three daughters. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Audrey in advance of her reading at the Hay Festival, Kells. Audrey began by reading from The Undertaking. Let's have a listen. So in this passage, we are down to only two soldiers, Peter, the main character, and Faustman. They are at a point where... People around them are starving. They were surrounded by the Russians. They're all slowly but surely dying. So Peter makes a decision to surrender. He slept again, but not for long. Hunger woke him. He lay still, his legs tucked into his chest, his eyes staring at the dying man's shit-stained trousers. Others had already gone over. He had seen them walking across the river to the cheering Russians. He rubbed his fingers over his hand. His skin was itchy and quick to bleed, more hospitable for the lice and other infections, lethal ones. He could desert, wait for the war to end, and then go home, be a father to his son, a husband to his wife. But would she want him like that, a man who had surrendered? Would she forgive him and explain it fairly to their son, tell him that his father had been starving to death in the Russian snow, abandoned, that nobody was coming, no Führer, no general? His chest tightened, and he dug his hand under his tunic to massage the skin over his heart, in light circles, his finger dipping between each rib, tears running from his eyes. After all he had done, his shoulders heaved in the flickering darkness. He slept for a while, woke and went outside. He took off his hats again, his scarves, freezing his head, freezing his thoughts, everything white, no blame, no guilt, no bright white nothingness, no past, no future. He pulled on his hats, went back inside and sat beside Faustman. Can we talk about some of the ideas you got together when you were writing the book? You mentioned to me the idea of silence and how we all deal with trauma. Well, you know, I became fascinated by the German perspective on the Second World War when I was about 18 and I travelled to Germany for the first time. And I didn't really know an awful lot about the country because I'm, I'm not of German background or I didn't do it for the leaving cert. I had no real interaction with the country. And suddenly I landed into this place, very different from Ireland in many ways, but most differently of all because there was just this shroud of silence over the past. It was almost John Cleese, don't mention the war, but it was so much more painful than that. There was this complete shroud of silence over the past. And not just among the adults, not just among the people who had participated in the war, because this was 40 years after the war had ended. Many were still alive. There were grandparents going about daily business, you know, with their grandchildren, that kind of thing. But also among my peers, also among the 18-year-olds I knew, there was just this wall. You did not go behind that wall. And you did not even dare to ask what was behind that wall, because what you knew behind that wall was just a huge level of trauma, pain, and pain that was not on display to the world because they were the losers. They were the people who had perpetrated this horrendous crime against humanity. So you 
learnt very quickly not to go there, but I suppose I became fascinated by that silence and became fascinated by the obvious damage to these people. I wanted to know what they were protecting themselves from, what was behind that wall, because I only had the headline interpretation and understanding of what lay behind it, but I didn't really have a human or a humanist understanding of what that was. It never left me. That I went on then to live in Germany, and three years after that, when I was 21, I encountered that again, but maybe in a different way and in, in a much more painful and distinct way. I ended up outside the walls of Dachau, the concentration camp outside Munich. And I had gone there to see the camp with an American Jewish man about my age who had lost relatives there. And he had pledged to his family that he would visit the camp and he would pay homage to those relatives. And we got there and it was closed. It was a Monday and he was going back to the States the following day. And he was very upset because he hadn't fulfilled his pledge to his family. And I said, well, look, why don't we just walk around the perimeter? I, you know, let's do something. So as we were walking, we were talking a little bit about it, but just mainly looking at the wire, which was still in place, the towers, or everything was as it had been, a shrine really to death and horror. And as we walked, we met a woman, an older German woman, and she was tending to her garden and it was a beautiful summer's July day. And we started to talk and she had no German and he had no English. So I was interpreting between the pair of them. And as we talked, just banalities, it emerged that she had lived in this house all her life. She had lived there with her garden abutting the camp walls, the camp wire, as his family died inside. And it was the most searing encounter. He already, this man who was already upset, was now just hugely upset, angry, shouting at this woman, why didn't you do something? How could you live here? How could you stay on living here? With really this tainted soil, all around us was tainted soil. And she stood there saying, what could I have done? I didn't know anything. What could I have done? And she ended up obviously as well, very upset. But I stood between these two people and again, trauma and walls, because if he looked at all over his wall into her trauma, he was betraying his people. He was betraying the relatives who had died on the other side of that wall. And if she looked over the wall into him, then she somehow was accepting responsibility or just breaking down her own protection, her own barrier against this cataclysmic event that had happened on the other side of her garden wall, essentially. So that stayed with me. And that simmered in my obviously very slow processing brain. <laughs> and I was in my 30s and I was having dinner in a restaurant in West Cork and I'd already worked in journalism and encountered trauma through that journalism. And I was having dinner with my husband, but we met the restaurateur who came over to us at the end of the night and he was German and he had been on the front during the Second World War. He had been a soldier and he'd been on the Eastern Front and he talked about his life in the Eastern Front and we talked about the planes he flew and all that kind of thing. And he talked about how he married a woman he didn't know to secure honeymoon leave and she in exchange got a pension if he died. And I sat there going, this is it. I don't know what this is, but it's it. And it turned out to be the framework for the undertaking. I'm wondering about the issue of choice and how we all rationalise the choices we make and how we all live with them. Was that question important to you when you set out to write the book? Well, I think that question of choice was crystallised by that encounter. Mm. We make choices all the time. Now, if we're lucky enough, those choices don't have major repercussions and we can just live a very kind of easy life. But if you live in a period of great instability 
and difficulty, where you're worried about how you will secure food, where you're worried about how you will secure, you know, a bed for your child, you begin to make choices. And those choices can have huge repercussions for you, for your children, for the future of your family, of your community. And I was fascinated by those choices. I mean, you go into a ballot box every few years and you make a choice. And if you're fortunate enough where you live in a reasonably stable democracy, it shifts things around a little bit, but not a huge amount. But if you start to make serious political or everyday choices that have implications, as happened during the Nazi regime, people made choices to go along with it and found themselves involved in something that if they didn't make the next choice, they were brutalised or taken off to a cell or killed or murdered, whichever word you want to use. So suddenly one choice led to the next choice. I've always been fascinated by the implications of choice because I have had a very fortunate life and the choices I have made have not had huge repercussions. But I was born in a country that in one section obviously was in conflict, but the part where I was, you know, in the Wicklow Mountains, we had a very nice life. So the choices I had to make were really without major consequence. But had I been born as Katharina was during the Nazi regime, what choices would I have made? What would have been the implications of those choices? And the sad thing is, Audrey, that sometimes the choices we make are choices we make when we're maybe in our early 20s and we don't have that rich experience of life to know better. And as such, we can make very unthinking decisions and it has a huge effect on the rest of our life. Or we can be very lucky and make a very fast choice on something and, you know, back the right horse and it all comes together. And that's what they faced. It was slightly more complicated. I mean, both my characters are caught up in a war and in a political system that is ruthless and brutal. Katharina followed her parents and as they ingratiated themselves deeper and further into the Nazi regime and she too went along with this because she actually liked the dresses that were on offer, liked the parties, liked the kind of, I suppose, the social climbing that the Nazi regime facilitated in Germany at the time. She closed her eyes as to where the dresses were coming from. The dresses were the clothing of Jewish people who had been taken forcibly from Berlin and put in concentration camps, probably sent to their death. She closed her eyes to the trips she made to the pawn shop when she bought pens and scratched out the name Samuel and put instead the name Peter. So she allowed herself to close her eyes to the implications of those choices. I like to think I would not have, but I wasn't there. I wanted to explore what it was like to have been there. And, you know, if you didn't make that choice, actually, to go along with that, what were the implications? So did you, Katharina and her father, both her parents, ended up having more food and a better apartment because they went along with the system. But in the end, they sacrificed their son to the system because they had engaged so deeply with the regime that they couldn't backtrack and it had devastating implications for them. But going against the regime had devastating implications for other people as well. So people who who housed Jewish people, maybe people started off at the beginning, you know, going, yes, of course, I will help. And then as the toughness and the horrendousness of the regime became clear, they found that increasingly difficult to do. So there are not that many heroes in that period of history. You know, we like to focus on Schindler's list, but actually there are very few of us who are Schindler. And the other aspect is, Audrey, that people have to survive and be very 
pragmatic and whether they were naturally resilient or they learned to be resilient, they had to in some way be creative on how they lived. Earlier you said to me about the OMA bombing and I know you reported on that and also you worked as a reporter over in Bosnia and I'm interested to know how you use some of those experiences to create the characters, the key characters. I wasn't reporting in Bosnia for very long and I suppose to some degree that actually played a huge part in this novel because I, I had just a snapshot. I had a snapshot of the soldiers moving about, of the destroyed buildings, of the refugees, of the displacement, of the trauma again, that word. And I drew on that sense of chaos and that sense of people being imposed upon. Then, funnily enough, I did see all these empty houses, you know, these villages that had been emptied and purged. And, you know, you see all these houses and you know bit by bit they're going to be filled by other people who are going to take over these houses. So, yes, the images stayed with me and I definitely drew on them. But I suppose in terms of trauma, I probably drew more heavily on... Oma, because that was a difficult experience. It was a difficult experience to report on. It was a difficult experience to witness. And I suppose partly because there'd been such normality in the wake of the ceasefire and we'd all let down our guard. I stayed in the town. I met the people who's, who had lost their relatives. It became quite a, a focus for me for a couple of years. The silence in the wake of the bomb, but then the silence for many years afterwards was not unlike... It was different, but it wasn't unlike the silence I met in Germany all those years ago. And, you know, when you sit across the kitchen table from somebody who's lost a child, a wife, a daughter in Oma, it's no different, really. That bomb, the impact of that bomb is no different to the bomb that went off in Berlin, killing the people there or killing, destroying Katharina's life is no different to the bomb that went off in Bosnia is no different to the bombs that are going off in Syria is no different to the bombs that the Germans dropped in Eastern Europe. So you realise that the echoes and the impact of those bombs and of those explosions and on those families, it doesn't matter whether it was 40 years ago, 60 years ago, whether it's right now, those are the same silences that follow and the same devastation that follows. And and yet we keep doing it. And I think it's just unbelievable in humanity that we have devised this wonderful technology for allowing us to Skype with people on the other side of the world. And, you know, we interact with people in a visual and and sound bites and everything else but yet we don't seem to be saying anything different we don't seem to have found a way to discuss these major issues of conflict and conflict resolution and we're still allowing ourselves to be polarised we're still allowing ourselves to see a them and in us the book explores what it was like to be them to be the people who did the wrong thing to be the people who made the wrong decisions and what it was like to live with those implications and because I feel very strongly if we don't start seeing it from them and if we just start seeing it from us and the perspective of us as the victors then we keep making the same mistakes so let's start seeing the implications of those choices and those mistakes because maybe then we stop before we start to make those mistakes. How you develop the teamship and the conflict and the dynamics of human psychology as the soldiers approach Stalingrad, it's tremendous reading. How difficult was that to do and how difficult was that to write? I studied military history nearly 20 years ago and I learned a lot in this, even though it's not a history book. I imagine to write that, it was very hard to get the tone right and also how you present the facts with the emotions around them. To some degree, you're dealing with a bunch of lads, aren't you? Dealing with a bunch of people who 
build this really intense friendship and bond. It's not a friendship in its normal way, but it's a collegiate, protective environment. And I suppose, you know, the German army was built, and then the Nazis very much used this, on local groups and local networks to provide a kind of a, a sense of people looking out for each other. And there were very small groups of men, and they were all drawn from the same area. So these my men were drawn from the area around Darmstadt. So they were all looking out for each other. So to some degree, when they went west during this war, things had been really quite easy. They just kind of railroaded their way across Western Europe. So these guys, to some degree, had had quite a nice time. Obviously, there had been some losses or some difficulties, but really it wasn't until they turned east that they started to become completely dependent on each other. And yeah, obviously I'm not male. <laughs> so yeah, I did try very much to create that sense of comradeship. But then, you know, as each of them fell away, that sense of loss, because once one was gone, the group was smaller, they were more vulnerable. And it wasn't just a loss to them, it was a loss they knew too to their community, to their people back home. And I suppose the other thing, you know, you talk about the psychology, you talk about what I wanted very much to do, and this explains to some degree the writing, everything is very pared back. Because I suppose in coming back to my journalism, I found that in journalism, writers and news desks tended to rely on the type of weaponry and, you know, how much Semtex and, you know, how many Kalashnikovs and the weight of the bombs that were falling or whatever else. And I just, I couldn't see anything but the human devastation. I didn't want a discussion of the tanks or the type of aircraft or the guns. I don't go into that because that's not the point. The point is the humanity and the degradation of the human soul and the human body as they went further east. And reading those scenes, there's some very savage scenes of sexual violence, of bullying. But you do paint the bewilderment, the tension and the solidarity brilliantly. You capture some of the very nasty aspects of war. Was that important for you and for the reader to actually know about this stuff? Vital because I think we hide from it. And I think we also become inured to it. And to some degree, I suppose I'm kind of shouting in the corner going, we have to understand just how terrible it is on a human scale, because I know we see it and I know we watch it and I know we read about it. But I suppose I was trying to take it a step further and get us to feel it. And I tried to create space for the reader. To some degree, I wrote it as a piece of theatre, relying very heavily on dialogue, because I think when you go to the theatre, you're prepared to interact very readily. If you read a book, often readers want to be spoon-fed a little bit. And I was not going to spoon-feed any reader, I'm afraid. (laughs) I kind of were quite demanding, actually. And it was very important, I felt, that if I was going to show this and if I wanted to explore this and it is a journey of exploration so if you want to be fed and taken on a nice journey this is not the book for you but if you want to explore the human condition to some degree you know and I suppose I draw on the French like this young men that is what I set out to do so it isn't a comfortable ride but I go back to the point is we have to stop doing this to each other and find a way to enter a new form of dialogue And 
That was Audrey McGee talking to me about her incredible debut novel, The Undertaking. Audrey will be taking part in this year's Hay Festival Kells, which kicks off on the 2nd of July. I'll give you some more details later. Coming up next, The School of Life in the 19th Century Novel. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If you want to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie? Or if you've missed any of our recent programmes, well, don't worry, they're all up on the Talking Books webpage. All you need to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. Sure, you might get some ideas as to summer holiday reading. Okay, let's now move on to the dramatic, the harsh, the turbulent, the emotional, and humorous world of the 19th century novel. What makes a classic? And why do some of the big reads of the 19th century, such as Vanity Fair, Silas Marner, Don Quixote, Madame Bovary, Persuasion, Jude the Obscure, War and Peace, Great Expectations, Frankenstein, God, I could go on and on, manage to make it onto most people's top ten reads. Well, along with a bit of classic Philip Roth, Sadie Smith, John Updike and the wonderful Don DeLillo for company. Well, before I lose a run of myself and get sidetracked on that hairy debate, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Jim Shanahan from the Department of English in St. Patrick's College, Drumcondra. Jim has published widely on 18th and 19th century fiction and has also contributed articles to the Literary Encyclopedia Online and over 120 articles to the Cambridge Dictionary of Irish Biography. His research interests include the historical novel 18th and 19th century literature, the interaction between history, memory and fiction, romanticism and fiction of the 1798 rebellion. And he's one voracious reader. Well, I spent a lovely afternoon chatting with Jim about our favourite reads, novels of ideas, inspiration and morality, why we like them and what century and who writes it best. When I finally managed to hit record, I started off by asking Jim a big, nasty, dirty opening question. How relevant is the 19th century novel to the modern reader? Let's have... A listen. Well, I think it is. Now, when we say 19th century, of course, the 19th century is a long century. So you're moving from novels like Jane Austen's novels right through to, say, a novel like The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. That's a long way from Jane Austen's kind of plots. Uh, But when we think of the 19th century, I suppose the novels we tend to think of are those big brick-sized novels with the long rambling plots, loads of characters that unfold very slowly over a long time. And I suppose there's a perception that maybe modern readers don't have the time to read those, don't have the energy to read them, or that there's too much padding in them. But I would say we need to remember that the 19th century was a century of great change, great social change. Industrialization came along, changed the way people saw the world. And those issues, the issues of how we deal with change and how change affects people, 
remains important and central, I would say, to literature and indeed to the kind of literature that we read. Can we look at some of the big themes in the great 19th century novels? There's a lot of storylines championing social justice issues, poverty. I know you mentioned yourself there, Jim, earlier about industrialisation. But there were a lot of heavy-hearted moral books being put out there. Well, indeed. And again, this goes back to the point, I suppose, about novels being taken seriously. One way of taking them seriously is by having a moral or didactic element to them, that they were improving or civilising society. In many ways, novels, especially in the 18th century, can be seen to have sort of promoted manners. And in the 19th century, I suppose, they also were seen, particularly in the early half of the century, seen that the didactic element of them, the moral element of them, was very important. As the century goes on, we move away from the idea of the novel as a sort of moral instructor to the idea of the novel as uh, the novel of ideas. So by the end of the century, I think we're looking at a, a very different type of novel. But certainly social issues right in the middle of the century, I suppose the 1840s, 1850s, is very important. The novel is moving from the idea of society as being a very small group of people like we see in Jane Austen, a very limited society, very limited social circle, expanding out to include all of society, right from the very, very poorest right up to the very the very wealthiest. So a novel like Bleak House, for example, in the middle of the 19th century uh, has, you know, the denizens of the worst slums in London, Tom All Alones, and the very highest echelons of society. Not only that, but the novel stresses that these groupings are interconnected and that the actions of the wealthy and the powerful have a direct impact on those at the lowest end of the ladder. That's clear. But more importantly, that what happens at the very lowest end of society can ultimately have consequences for those people at the very top of society. So in a novel like Bleak House, Lady Deadlock, you know, catches typhus from the slums of London and dies. That's a really concrete way of saying what we do the decisions we make will not just have an impact on those who are powerless, but it will also ultimately come back to revisit the powerful. Now, one of the more interesting novels of the 19th century is Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Can we talk a little bit about it? Yes, Thackeray's Vanity Fair is, for many people who expect a certain thing of the 19th century novel, it it conforms to it in many ways. It's long, rambling, lots of characters, could be shorter perhaps. But Thackeray's tone, I think, is one perhaps of all the writers of the 19th century, perhaps the most savage. And in that novel, I mean, he, he subtitles it a novel without a hero. Uh, and not only does it not have a hero, it doesn't really have a heroine. It has a, a kind of a heroine, but we're not really encouraged to empathise very much with her or any of the characters. It has, of course, the great anti-heroine, perhaps of the 19th century, in Becky Sharp, whose machinations throughout the novel are supposedly, we're supposed to disapprove of these. But in actual fact, I think we kind of admire Becky She's the most real character in many ways in the novel. And one of the questions that we ask is how in a society such as we see in this novel, how else could someone like Becky Sharp get on in society? It's a society that's inherently unfair, unjust. It's also a society, I suppose, in which money and the relationships between people tend to revolve around money and the acquiring. There's a famous chapter in How to Live on Nothing a Year, which is really about how the wealthy, again, could put off their bills and not pay their bills. And the victims, of course, are tradesmen, you know, who have given them credit and that the wealthy were powerful enough to not pay. The poor, of course, always had to pay one way or the other. And these themes come out, whether it's Elliot, whether it's Hardy, whether it's Dickens. There are these bites within the novel that we really look at our society and how we're treating each other and how fair our society is. Can we talk about some of the great relationships, some of the flawed marriages and what they tell us of society and the expectations women had at that time? Well, of course, 
you know, marriage was and remained for the most part in the 19th century a commercial transaction. Right from, again, the stories of Jane Austen, you know, we think of Mrs. Bennet as a rather silly character. And when we see her on television adaptations, she generally appears to be silly. And she was silly in many ways. But she's absolutely right to be concerned. What is she going to do with all of these daughters? They don't have money. So how is she going to set them up for life? There was a certain social class, particularly of women, who were if you like, too wealthy to work at menial jobs, but not wealthy enough to have an independent living. And for those, life was quite traumatic in an entirely different way to the way maybe that the poorer classes would have struggled. But if we go straight to the end of the century, then we're looking at someone like Thomas Hardy, who's deeply pessimistic sort of view about life. We're moving from really a world where you have the sort of comforting, omniscient narrator that we get in Jane Austen and in Charles Dickens to some degree, who knows everything, who knows what's going on. And there's a certain comfort in the Mm. idea that that he is in some way a sort of guiding his characters through the novel to something at the end of the century where really the world is seen as at best a sort of neutral place, if not actually malevolent. And marriage, we see in Thomas Hardy, you know, is seen very much as a kind of a joyless sort of existence, one for, if you like, the sort of the legalisation of sexual relations. And for Hardy, of course, you know, people should not stay married who didn't want to remain married and the tyranny of being forced to stay together, the lack of availability of divorce, which is a theme that we see again in something like uh, Hard Times where poor people cannot get divorced. Divorce required an act of parliament, it required money, it required influence. People who didn't have that were forced to live together for the rest of their lives, whether they were happy or not. Now, it's interesting that you brought up Hard Times. Do you think that Charles Dickens was able to further his social campaigning or social justice remits or his political campaigns through his books because they exercise so many lessons on life. Do you think he he was very conscious of that and possibly the responsibility he felt as a writer that he had to champion the plights of the poor, the devastation of industrialisation, the impact of urbanisation on the working classes. Absolutely. Right from the very start, even from something like the Pickwick Papers, right at the very start of his writing career, where he looks at the Eatonswill election uh, and the chaotic sort of form of the, the electoral system. His second novel after Pickwick Papers, if you can call Pickwick Papers a novel, which is, you know, I mean, we do, but in many ways it's not a novel. It's just a collection of stories linked together. But his second novel, of course, was Oliver Twist, which is, you know, attacking the poor law, attacking the poor house, orphanages. Unrealistic. I mean, Oliver Twist is a strange, odd character. He doesn't seem to be affected by the fact that he's come out of the workhouse. Uh, He's very posh and angelic. But right from the start, I mean, there was a social element to what Dickens was doing. The Yorkshire schools are attacked in Nicholas Nickleby. And of course, there had been a tradition in the 40s, 1840s, of, I suppose, Condition of England novels, novels that were looking at England, analysing what was wrong Mm. with England and trying to inform people really about the lives of other people. And one of the things novels do, of course, is they tell us about other people's Mm. lives and the lives other people live. And we see that in Dickens, particularly in the the middle of his career, where he has those, those three novels that really attack public institutions Bleak House where he attacks the law Little Dorrit uh, where he attacks uh, government the circumlocution office and Hard Times which I think is the one probably most relevant where he he analyses industrial England the north of England what it's doing to people what it's doing to people's relations with each other what it's doing for relations between the different classes and education of course also comes into Hard Times so Hard Times takes a swipe at a lot of the, the, the social issues that existed in the England of its time much of it would have been 
perhaps new to Dickens's readers as well, who wouldn't have known an awful lot about the industrial towns of the north of England. And it's interesting, Jim, that if you read Hard Times now, it's actually very relevant. While there were different scenarios and structures, there are very universal themes of alienation, of disintegration, of isolation in relationships, of the impact of the workplace on the worker, the lack of time, the abuses within society and how harsh and robotic, I suppose, society was becoming. And if we look at it now, there is a lot of troubling questions put out there that we could apply directly into our environment and our workplaces today. Indeed. I mean, it is a critique of the society of the time, of the processes uh, of that society, of rapid change without planning. Uh, All of this is very Mm -hmm. familiar Mm -hmm. to us here, of substituting the notions of economy for society is is at the heart of hard times. And really, I suppose it's an attack. It's it's building on the work of people like uh, Thomas Carlyle. Indeed, it's dedicated to Mm. Thomas Carlyle and the notion that something does need to be done about the plight of the working classes, these new working classes classes in England who've been in a very short period of time have moved from maybe the rural areas where they they lived in pattern with the seasons to a new environment overcrowded very poor sanitation unplanned cities that were expanding rapidly into a life where they were living by the clock where they were working very very long hours in dangerous physically dangerous conditions but also even more importantly perhaps tediously repetitive work Mm. over and over again with very little leisure time. And all of this was against the background, I suppose, of what we see in hard times, an attack on the notions of utilitarianism, Mm. the idea that everything must be able to be measured, that it was all about, as it says in hard, the word utilitarian isn't Mm. really mentioned in hard times. He uses the word fact Mm. uh, instead, that things must be measurable and that things must be quantifiable and that the solution to everything Mm. can be found in a statistical way. Whereas, Mm. of course, what Dickens argues is that that's not enough, that people need leisure. They need to have their imaginations stimulated. It's one thing to move people out of their traditional working patterns into something new. But if you don't give them then some other extra dimension to their lives, if there isn't something beyond mere measurement or a mere financial transaction taking place here, then their lives are essentially meaningless. The exquisite wisdom of the heart. Well, indeed, that's not quite the way I would have put it. But yes, I mean, it is. there is a sense, a, a very much a contrast between the two. And I think it's important to say that Dickens isn't saying, you know, that we should go completely over yeah. to the side of what he calls fancy in the novel. But there's a balance to be struck there, a very important balance to be struck. The problem, I suppose, with the Victorian novelist was that the condition of England in the 1840s was crying out for radical political mm. change. And very, very few people particularly if they wanted to keep their readers, uh, their middle class or upper class readers, were not going to advocate radical political change. So in a sense, despite all the the good intentions of hard times, uh, and it is a fascinating book, Dickens does not come down at the end of the day on saying, you know, we need to make radical change. He, he, he argues that there has to be some kind of imaginative sympathy mm. between employer mm. and employee and that that has to be at the basis of all human relations. And what we see, I suppose, in hard times is that Thomas Gradgrind, the the chief industrialist, is not a bad man, but his utilitarian philosophy is shown to be inadequate in the novel. Uh, His family become dysfunctional and ultimately it's a sterile 
philosophy. And that's symbolically represented, I think, at the end of the novel by the fact that his son is dead, uh, his daughter is unmarried. Literally, I think there's no future for that kind of thinking. And in hard times, I think we see again and again the need for this balance between not just work and not just learning, but also sort of to feed the imagination. Mr. Sleary, I think of Sleary's horse troop, which is often seen as the sort of antithesis to Gradgrindian utilitarianism in the novel, you know, says people must be amused. They can't be always working or learning, you know. And that is true. People do need leisure to feed their imaginations as well to make them happier individuals. And Jim, do you think books like Hard Times, do you think they influenced legislation and policy making on labour issues? Could they have maybe empowered or inspired later day more progressive politicians in the British Parliament? Well, they, they could have. I mean, you know, Benjamin Disraeli, of course, who becomes later Prime Minister, I mean, wrote three social condition novels in the 1840s, you know, um, Coningsby, Sybil and Tancred, the three of those, you know, and he was pointing out, you know, this very same thing. For, for him, I think what was needed was political solutions rather than sort of hand-wringing. But I think what we do see happening perhaps in a general sense, is that the more utilitarian ideas, the kind of ideas, the kind of thinking, the laissez-faire ideas, the ideas that we saw in this country which which led or contributed or added to the issues around the famine, for example, uh, that kind of fatalistic view about population control and interfering with the markets, that idea gets softened as the century goes on and utilitarianism becomes sort of humanised into a kind of late Victorian liberalism at which we can see, I suppose, Mm. social change. The thing is, Thomas Gradgrind is a reformer in his own way. He has an office full of these blue books, these statistical analysis of the problems of England. And there was a tremendous interest in this. It was the age of improvement, remember. But improvement at what cost? And I think this is the point of of hard times, is that the human and the the individual always needs to be considered in this. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. And that's vitally important, I think, when we think about how the Victorians ultimately go about their business. Can we talk a little bit about Middlemarch? It's a deeply interesting, painful in parts, but hugely revealing reflection on the choices people make in life and how they have to stick with them. Indeed. I think George Eliot is is a much more intellectual writer Mm. than Charles Dickens is. And Middlemarch, I think, is probably, uh, some of my colleagues will laugh when I say this, I think I do think it is probably the best novel of the 19th mm. century, although Eliot wouldn't be my favourite mm. uh, novelist of the mm. 19th century by any means. But again, you know, it gets back to that perennial theme of change and the human consequences of change mm. and people trying to find roles for themselves, mm. I think, in life. So the figure of Dorothea Brooke, for example, who's right at the centre of uh, Middlemarch, you know, who's looking to lead a useful life. But how difficult it was to do that within the constraints of the kind of society in which she existed. And of course, although it's written in the 1870s or published in the 1870s, it's set just before the first Great Reform Act of 1832. So it's a kind of a historical novel, indeed, even in Eliot's own time. Mm. It's written about the past. And what it does show, I suppose, is just how complicated change actually is and the notion of social mobility mm. and, and the, your ability to move up or down mm. the social scale which again is another sort of perennial theme of the 19th mm. century novel how we see in Middlemarch some people are going up in the world some people are going down in the world not dramatically just slightly just enough I think and we follow you know a cross section again of society of a certain kind. We don't see the very, very poor. We don't see the very, very rich either. I mean, 
Mr. Brook, I suppose, and, and Dorothea are wealthy. And again, of course, in comparison, say, to someone like Dickens, who's very much a novelist of London, of the metropolis, mm. the, you know, the greatest city of the 19th century. Eliot tends to be a novelist of rural England and pastoral England, if you like, even though Middlemarch itself, the town, is probably Coventry and therefore not very far away from Birmingham, which was becoming one of the great sort of industrial powerhouses. But it's that idea of the countryside, the arrival of the railways, how that's going to change and complicate society. And it doesn't have the convenient happy ending Mm. that we often associate Mm. with the Victorian novel, which in fact most of them, or very many of them, don't have a happy ending. But they have realistic endings. Mm. And this in itself, I think, is an element of progress. We're not ending with marriage as we do in Jane Austen. We're ending sometimes in having to accept that there's only so much change we can bring about and that sometimes people have good ideas at the wrong time. And it's a very haunting novel. But what's interesting is that if you look at a lot of school curriculars and if you look at what young women are reading are encouraged to read, the great novels that are pushed at women certainly or young girls in schools. Withering Heights always triumphs over Middlemarch. Why do you think that is? Or certainly it's perceived to be more suited towards a young girl. Well, Middlemarch is long and it is complex. And in many ways it has all the advantages Mm. and the disadvantages of the Victorian novel. Mm. I think people are terrified of the brick-sized novel nowadays. But, you know, you see people steaming through Game of Thrones, no mm. problem. Harry Potter, no problem. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. But when confronted with a thousand-page Victorian novel, people kind of run away from it. But like anything else, you have to give them time. You, mm. have, to, you have to inhabit them for a while. Mm. They are whole worlds mm. of themselves. And you need to read your way into mm. it to understand all the nuances that go on. And I think people maybe don't have the time. A friend of mine once said, yeah, Middlemarch, yeah, it really gets going after about 500 pages. And and that's true. I mean, you need that depth of background yeah. in order to appreciate the kind of changes that she's, that she's describing. So in comparison, say, to something like Wuthering Heights, mm. which in many ways is the sort of last hurrah of mm. romanticism, which is all about intensity, all mm. about feeling, all about breaking out Mm. of the constraints of, I suppose, what we would call Victorian society. Mm. It's, you know, you get this figure of of Cathy and Heathcliff, Mm. the sort of romantic hero and heroine in this claustrophobic world, very small world, you know, of the Moors. Really, it's a book about two houses and two families. Mm. And in that sense, I suppose it's intense, it's dramatic. It perhaps feeds into a certain stage in all our developments where we're uh, more emotional than Mm. rational. Mm. Perhaps that's got something to do with it. It has superb qualities and images as well Mm. that really are are striking. You know, the the ghost of Cathy outside the window, you know. But Wuthering Heights at the end of the day is narrated by a number of different people, none of whom can be taken as being reliable. And I suppose that in itself adds to its excitement, adds to the mystery of it as well. You get uh, slightly different perspectives all the time none of which are actually really true. It's difficult to know what we can actually believe in Wuthering Heights and what we need to take as perhaps not true. If you had only three novels to take from the 19th century and you were stuck with these and nothing else for the rest of your life to read, I take it Middlemarch is one. Would there be a Dickens? What else would be there? Well, I suppose you have to draw a distinction perhaps between best novels and favourite novels. (laughs) Um, And I suppose... If I were to bring one Dickens novel with me, it would be, depending on on how logical I was feeling in a particular moment, 
I would say that probably his best novel for me would be Bleak House in terms of just the, the sheer scale of what's going on in it. My favourite Dickens novel would probably have to be, I think, Dickens' own favourite novel, which was David Copperfield, I think, mm. for just its range of memorable characters. I don't think there's any other novel that has the same range of memorable characters. And as a third novel, I would probably bring... One we mentioned earlier, I think, uh, Vanity Fair. I like Thackeray. I think uh, his view of early 19th century England and indeed Victorian England is um, perhaps closer in many ways to reality than some of the other writers. I remember a couple of years ago there was a, well, maybe it's 15 years now, they made an adaptation, I think, of Vanity Fair, uh, Andrew Davis for the BBC. A lot of people didn't like it. I think not so much because it wasn't true to the novel, because I think actually it was true to the novel, but perhaps because it wasn't true to their perception of what Victorian England was actually like. And I think what Thackeray tends to take is a much more acerbic view of 19th century Britain and England in particular and society. And I suppose the other thing from a narrowly parochial point of view is that there's much more sort of Irish characters in Thackeray than there is in Dickens. I, I, I can't think of a single identifiably Irish character in any of Dickens's 15 novels, whereas Thackeray's novels are, are full of them. So I suppose from a narrowly sort of provincial point of view, I have a, an affection for Thackeray. That's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, I've got a very interesting American voice lined up for you. So plenty to look forward to there. And for anyone interested in going to the Hay Festival Kells in County Meath, which kicks off next week from the 2nd to the 6th of July, well, all you need to do is go to www.hayfestival.com forward slash Kells. And the website has lots of information on who's doing what and where. I have to say, they've an amazing lineup of speakers and literary workshops and also have some interesting live music, theatre and poetry. I know I'm looking forward to Gillian Clark, the National Poet of Wales, and one of their stage adaptions of Mary Lavin's short stories. They also have an antiquarian and rare book auction, some arty cookery demonstrations and lots, lots more. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan, who helped out on research, and the great Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. Go easy, go light, and soak in the sublime sounds of Sophie Hutchins. Enjoy.
thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.